Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Khalq Collective podcast. We hope everyone has been well and taken care of the past few months as things continue to unfold globally with long-lasting ramifications. The past few months have been a reflection of exactly those developments for us as we continue to grapple with the events which catapulted the Taliban back into a formal role of governance in Afghanistan. As we try to understand why and how the Taliban are now back at the helm of political and unprecedented military power in Afghanistan, we have been reflecting on many historical and geopolitical questions ourselves. In this episode of the podcast, we will be speaking with political analyst and commentator, Mr. Wali Firozan. The episode delves into the background, origins, and beliefs of the Taliban group, as well as their historical style of governance. Mr. Firozan has also kindly recorded some additional points, which have been added to the episode as addenda. So without further ado, let's get into the latest episode of our Khalq Collective podcast. We really hope you'll enjoy the session. Hello, uh, friends and comrades. Welcome back to our podcast. Uh, in this episode, uh, I'm very honored to be joined uh, by esteemed social political commentator and analyst, uh, Mr. Wali Frozon. Uh, and we're hoping to discuss and analyze uh, the history of Afghanistan and how uh, our history has led up to this point and specifically looking at the new government that has been positioned in a place of power in Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban. Uh, so Mr. Frozan, welcome. Uh, thank you, dear Irat. Thanks for inviting me and for the kind introduction. Thank you, sir. Um, so. I guess uh, my first question would be, uh, who are the Taliban and how did they originate and how are their historical objectives uh, in Afghanistan shaped by um, Afghanistan's conditions? Uh, so the Taliban um, ideology, it's actually, uh, it, it has roots in, in Afghan culture, the ideology part. Uh, I'm not um, saying that the practice and the actual rules and, and, and laws that they are trying to uh, impose or enforce today, they exist in Afghan culture or their way of, of conducting uh, their war. Um, that part is separate, but I'm talking only about the ideology. It, it, it's, it, it's a culture and social issue that exists in, in, in our culture. Uh, for example, their views about women, uh, women liberty and women uh, participation in society and work, it's, it's not very uh, unique to, to Taliban. Uh, but the difference is that uh, throughout the past, the modern history of Afghanistan, especially in the past 100 years, Mm, women at rights, women at uh, their, um, at least on the paper, they had freedom, they had equal rights, and uh, yes, there were violation of, of women's rights, there are uh, atrocities against women, uh, there are forced marriages, that has always happened, but at least the government um, and their policy and their, uh, as a whole, did not accept this kind of uh, behavior or this kind of conduct against women. So um, women had some level of protection, 
although in the family maybe uh, some uh, parents or, or father character or brother or or husband or the society had restrictions on women but but it wasn't it was individual it was uh, not acceptable and uh, with within the law uh, but uh, the role of Taliban, basically, what 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 goes wrong here now is because, together with the social um, condition that are in Afghan culture, when the government comes in play and gives hand together with the family and brother and husband that's violating a woman's rights, when the government joins forces with them, it becomes a problem. Um, so uh, to talk about the ideology of Taliban, uh, in my view, basically it goes back to about um, where the struggle starts between uh, the two parts, the two, uh, two sections or two segments of society in Afghanistan. And it has a lot to do with, with uh, modernization, with, with um, urban modernization and and traditionalists or reactionary forces in Afghanistan that wants to take the society back to, to traditional values, to um, basically more um, cultural values that exist in Afghan culture or in Muslim cultures in the past 1400 years ago, uh, years. So um, it, in my view, it started with, uh, with Mahmoud Tarzi, who was a journalist and he was also um, uh, Amal Khan's uh, father-in-law, and Amal Khan uh, got married to 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 his sister, to his daughter Malika Soraya, or Queen Soraya. So uh, Mahmoud Tarzi had a view to to bring or to take Afghanistan uh, through a change, uh, more like kind of a secularist society. Um, not a secularist in a sense that exists in, let's say, England or Canada and, and state or whatever, but um, some values of Afghan uh, traditional values, uh, but they wanted to bring change in Afghanistan and take it to towards some modernization. And Amon Lachon, after he, he took power, basically went to, to Europe and traveled. And when he came back after six months, he brought very um, rapid and sudden changes uh, that wasn't acceptable uh, to, to traditional Afghans. And they, talk, they thought this is, he's changing the country. He became uh, uh, kafir or infidel and he became Christian and he's bringing changes. And then uh, certain pictures of Malika Surayo was also published with with short sleeves, which was apparently fake, and it's still circulating in media. Uh, those are uh, known to be fake pictures. Uh, so there were forces at the time, just like Taliban, with the same mentality. I call them, for example, uh, Habibullah Kalakoni. Um, to me, he was the Taliban of, of, of that of his era, a hundred years ago. He, he also raised, again, a, a progressive uh, government, and he stopped that trend of Afghanistan going through a progress and change. And basically the wheel turned backward uh, by his uh, jihad against Amman Khan. So eventually Amman Khan had to leave the country and he came to power. 
but the kings after that Nader Shah and Zahir Khan and after that Daud Khan they all uh, followed Amonullah Khan's uh, pathway or steps and he uh, and these kings and, and presidents they brought the changes that Amonullah Khan wanted but in a very slow manner uh, without uh, being too aggressive and too um, too rapid, uh, so it was less noticeable to the traditionalists. Throughout the past hundred years in Afghanistan, there is so much focus in the big cities, all the economic development, education, and uh, government focus, uh, foreign countries focus, foreign aid, including uh, UN. Um, they all focus in big cities and the ruler Afghanistan is untouched. So what, it, what happened in 60s and 70s, uh, Afghanistan, the big cities like Kabul city, for example, it was uh, quite modern and, and uh, it was close to kind of, you can say it was semi-European kind of a culture. Uh, but the ruler of Afghanistan was untouched and uh, they lived in medieval times. Uh, so that by itself is the reason that when, when the city people wanted to, to bring changes, um, they faced resistance from, from uh, villages, from small towns. But um, but we went through also again in 1978 when the communist coup in Afghanistan in, in April of uh, 1978 happened. And again, uh, these people, just like Amon Khan, although with different values, Amon Khan was also, uh, I mean, he, was, uh, he wanted to bring changes and, and turn the country uh, to a modern country and, and also the Khalqis and Parchamis, the communists, without considering their uh, ideas of communism, without uh, those factors, if we leave those factors alone, their uh, basically uh, closeness to Russia and, and the idea of communism, they were also a progressive force and they wanted to bring change to the country. And, and that basically again triggered a jihad, just like. Abibullah Kalakoni and his, his um, group, whatever um, actions they took against Amallah Khan, the, the Mujahideen was a repeat of the same pattern. I know there are other stuff, that there were other things that was maybe more justifiable for Mujahideen to do that. And uh, I'm not talking about those factors. I'm just talking about how my focus is how these traditional values clashes with modernization every time in Afghanistan. So I'm just focusing on these particular aspect of this, um, this topic, not, not other, uh, I'm not justifying uh, the coup of 1978 or I'm not uh, disqualifying the Mujahideen action. I'm just, my point is that there were progress forces in Afghanistan, and I'm trying to, to explain how the two parts of society that takes Afghanistan, wants to take Afghanistan 
towards a modern society. And then there are other um, segment of society that pushes back and they, they try to hold on to traditional values. So that happened for the second time in 1978. And then again, when the Americans and the NATO and Europeans came in Afghanistan, there was uh, a slight change in, in the governments, although with all the corruption and all the backwardness and woman rights was violated during the past 20 years. And, and we saw a lot of, um, uh, there were a lot of um, backlash when they were trying, the women tried to go into politics or appear in TV or against singers. And, but at the same time, the government wasn't, um, wasn't like Taliban, you know, joining force with the people and, and suppressing women. So, and, and there was some positive changes in the past 20 years and, and the governments were um, kind of, a, in a way we can even say a little bit secular in a way, especially the Ghani government. There were certainly some secular forces within the uh, individuals or, or, or groups within the Ghani government that wanted to, to take Afghanistan through kind of a secular society uh, I'm not claiming that this was a secular government, but it wasn't uh, completely based on values that Mujahideen believed or the Taliban believed. So, um, so they also forced, like I mean, the Taliban in the past 20 years, they went to to their rank and files, and they took uh, they took uh, fighters based on the based on the these values. They told their fighters that. Do you want to, your sister to be in, in school? And then she will end up talking with foreigners. And then one day she will end, end up in TV and talk about our values and stuff. So come and join us. That was basically, if you talk to a Kandahari, this is what they tell you. So there is always a segment of society in Afghanistan that wants to bring changes and turn Afghanistan to a modern society. And then there is traditionalists like Habibullah Kalakoni a hundred years ago, and then Mujahideen was also 90% of Mujahideen were from suburban Afghanistan, from small villages in outskirts of, of uh, I mean, in very distance from the cities. And, and, and uh, they were making the rank and file of Mujahideen. Yeah, there were some, some educated, some uh, people from university, but even them, like for example, Burhanuddin Rabboni, Gulbuddin Ekmatyar, Burhanuddin Rabboni belongs to a very small town in Faizabad and Badakhshan. And, and also Hekmatyar um, uh, belongs to Imam Saib. Uh, so they came, they were just students. They were living in, in Kabul University in, in hostel or Lailia. So they were living in there. They were not part of Afghan modern urban population. So they were the one who called for jihad. So we see this repeat of the same pattern three times already in Afghanistan. And I believe that it will probably happen again and again because um, the two segments of society, they are always in, in a struggle. Uh, and they are trying to, every time this modern part of society that the people educated are, are city people, they wanna take, the country uh, uh, towards modernization, they face jihad. They face resistance from small village people, from, from people who value more like 
like traditional uh, Afghan values and, and Islamic values. Uh, so that, that's the ideology part of Taliban that exists and has roots in Afghanistan. Uh, the other, uh, from another angle, if we look at Taliban, is uh, basically their, um, uh, their um, connectivity and, and, and how they came to existence in a separate culture outside Afghan culture. So if we talk about how other countries, other religion, other um, uh, segments of Islam religion, like Wahhabism, like Takfiri, like Salafi, Deobandi, they all add impact on how Taliban was formed. So Taliban basically in, in after 1978, when the Russians invaded Afghanistan in 1979, uh, a lot of people um, due to bombardment and due to war, they lost their parents and there were 3 million refugees in, in Peshawar and Pakistan in, in general, a lot of them in Peshawar and living in camps. So um, out of that, uh, 3 million was actually registered refugees. And some say it's, it was even up to like 6 million. But so let's stick with the 3 million. Out of that 3 million, there were like about a million of them were children. And they, um, some of them had no parents. Some of them were very poor. And uh, the Pakistanis uh, took them to, uh, to their ma madrasas. And these madrasas were formed, actually a lot of them in, in Khaybar Pakhtunkhwa, which is the Peshawar area, uh, the Pashtun, areas of, of Pakistan. So uh, these madrasas were just a few hundreds in there, but during the, the, uh, the jihad, uh, during the war in um, Afghan uh, Soviet war, these madrasas expanded and in, in based on some, uh, some accounts, it, they went up to like 70,000 at the time, 70,000 madrasas in Pakistan, not all of them large and, and like big size. Some of them were just like 10 students or five students, some of them hundreds. So one of the madrasas, uh, which is very popular, it was in Akora Khatak in, in Peshawar, which is just uh, about 20 kilometers, 20 minutes when you drive towards, from Peshawar towards Islamabad, there is a town called Naushar or Naushahra. Akora Khatak, it's it's uh, Deobandi um, Madrasa, and this is uh, called uh, Darul Ulume Akhania. So Darul Ulume Akhania existed before the Afghan Jihad, before the Afghan War. Um, so it was it's based on Deobandi School of uh, Islam. Deobandi School of Islam came into existence. In, in India, in, in near Delhi, uh, about 20 minutes outside Delhi, there is a town called Dewand. And this school was actually um, came into existence before, just before the British were leaving India. And this was, um, some say it was created by British, some say it's, it was created by Muslims because the Muslims of India, they were very behind in, in, in every aspect in life comparing to the Hindus. So a young Hindu was going to university and education and they had the all kind of 
opportunities than Muslims didn't. So uh, the Deobandi school came into existence uh, based on uh, an idea for, for, a, for an Indian Muslim to become more competitive, to be more competitive um, with, with the rest of the population, like the Hindu young person in India. Uh, but um, two problems with Deobandi school. One, they were saying women are destruction. Women, uh, well, existence of women or presence of women, I should say, uh, in society does not allow man to be produ pro productive. Man will not be faithful to his um, religion if women are around him uh, in the society and in, in offices, at work, in school. And woman is also a distraction in, in every aspect of life, at work, in religion. So, and, and their faith basically will weaken when women are around them and as a distraction in the society. I'm not talking about their sister and wife and, and mother at home in the society. So that was one, one thing that they believed. The second thing they believed was uh, the Shia Muslims uh, are infidels. They are not, they are mushrik, uh, basically. This is the two beliefs they had. And that was, other than that, uh, the Wendy School of Islam went through a lot of, uh, they had a lot of good things happening in India at the time. And later they had the Aligarh University. Aligarh University is a well-known university and people from all over the world go and study there. Uh, but um, Deobandi school in, in, in India uh, was fine. It wasn't like really a, a, a farce or, 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 or a school of thought that became problem within India. It was just those values over time, it kind, it kind of moderated itself. So it went to Karachi, to Lahore, to other cities of India. There was no problem with that in, in Lahore. There was no problem with with uh, with Deobandi. Um, the problem became it became a problem when it came to Peshawar, and Peshawar, uh, Maulana Mahmud uh, brought Deobandi school, the Dar Ulume Akania and Akora Khatak, the city that I just talked about. So he he brought the school, and here it mixed with with the traditional values of, of Peshawari culture here. So I, I don't want to basically be, uh, in, in no mean I'm trying to uh, be uh, discriminating against anybody's um, ethnic, ethnicity or, uh, or, or people of Afghanistan. To me, they're all equal. And I'm actually Pashtun myself, but I admit that there are flaws in every culture. There are shortcomings in every culture and my culture as well. So being Pashtun myself, people cannot blame me for saying that in a way. So uh, in Pashtun culture, we call something Pashtun Wali, which is a code of conduct for Pashtuns. It's, it has very great values. There are a lot of things that we are very proud of it, but there are certain things that uh, in my opinion uh, are problematic. For example, uh, we value as, as based on Pashtun code of conduct, forgiveness is a big thing. When somebody come to your house, even they are your enemy, you have to provide them protection. Um, a lot of things, uh, other 
code of conduct that there are certain things that I don't want to talk about all of them, but specifically uh, within this topic of conversation is how it was uh, the, the, the Pashtun, uh, the Pashtun Wali code of conduct, how it became a problem and how it affected the Taliban ideology in their way of, of life and their beliefs. So the Pashtun Wali code of conduct, one of the problem it has is um, the in, in really traditional Pashtun culture and, and especially in the border areas of Pakistan, Afghanistan, women and men don't, does not, they do not interact at all. So women, so if you're a family in the border area and you have sisters and, and mother, uh, your sisters and, and mother, they will eat in another room and you will be eating with your dad. So even within the family, there is no interaction. Um, so the, and, and this was very appealing to the, 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 the in, 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 in Peshawar and Akora Khatak, when the students came from the border areas of, of Afghanistan, these orphans, and when they went to school, they were also rejecting women. And the traditional Pashtunwali culture was also segregating women and men. It was very appealing to them. It was acceptable and actually reinforcing their view. Uh, so nobody thought about, let's change this part in, in those madrasas. And it became reinforced. So there were students that came from all over Afghanistan, especially from border areas, and they were in Peshawar going to, to these madrasas without presence of women. As a lot of them didn't have a woman in their life because their mother died, their family died, their sister died, and they were just orphans. Some of them were poor students. They came to madrasas and they were uh, seeking education because their families were very poor. They couldn't provide and the madrasas were providing shelter, food, education, and clothes and everything. So they were staying there and there was influence of, of Deoband and influence of this Pashtunwali culture in there without presence of women at all. Even people with family, they were probably going to their families maybe every three months or six months. And again, in a very segregated society. So, um, so I, again, it was, this idea was enforced. And then there are other elements that came into play because there were money flowing from Saudi Arabia. They were promoting Wahhabism in there. And then there were Salafis and Takfiris. They were all coming in Peshawar, um, some of them through CIA, some of them through ISI, some of them through Saudi Arabia. They were all brought like people like Osama bin Laden and his group, for example. They were all brought at the same time in Peshawar and Peshawar became a center of jihad or war against a struggle against uh, Soviet Union, and all of them, they were focusing on these madrasas. Women participation in, in society and in public, their appearance is very limited all over Afghanistan. Uh, suppressing women rights is quite common, and in, uh, in especially in rural Afghanistan all over the country, but it's slightly more prominent in, in Pashtun areas, especially along the border areas of Pakistan, Afghanistan. 
So um, it's not to say that it's very unique to uh, Pashtun Wali culture. It's just more prominent in, in Pashtun culture. Uh, but um, the, the, the problem in Pakistan, in Peshawar specifically, it, it, there was a new culture created in, in Pakistan due to, to the Afghan-Soviet war. Uh, jihadists came from all over the world, uh, Salafis, Takfiris, Wahhabis, Deobandis, the, the Pashtun, Wali culture, all of that together, uh, it was reinforced this idea of, of, of isolation of um, gender in Peshawar. Um, it actually, uh, this was a new culture that that came into existence. The jihadi culture in Peshawar was a very unique culture uh, that really didn't belong to Afghanistan and, and somewhat didn't even belong to to Pakistan. So um, the Deobandi on its own uh, was somewhat fine. It was it wasn't a, a big uh, issue, and uh, and also the Pashtunwali culture on its own wasn't too bad. Um, but when it kind of mixed with this jihadi culture that came into existence in Peshawar together with the influence of Wahhabism, Salafi, Takfiri, and, and all of this together, this is where the problem came uh, came up and then the, the, a new uh, a new force like Taliban and, and groups like that came to existence and Al-Qaeda was formed in Peshawar. Uh, and it changed the, the the culture in the area. It changed the culture in, in Peshawar. It changed the culture in Afghanistan. And all of the things that's happening in the world is somewhat goes back. The terrorism, the Al-Qaeda, the Al-Shabaab, um, uh, the Abu Sayyaf groups in Philippines from throughout the African nations and in in Asia, all of this kind of somehow relates to this jihadist culture that came into existence in Peshawar with the help of Saudis, with the help of uh, US, CIA, and ISI. Uh, so this is not very unique to any of these cultures, but they all came together and then a new culture, a new tradition was formed and they had their university there was an office of like Osama bin Laden they had an organization called Khadamat and they were providing all kind of services to from hospitals to schools to to all kind of things so one of the books for example I saw from those madrasas because I was living in Peshawar at the time uh, they in their books children were going to school in grade two, three, or whatever, third grade, you could see their, their mathematic books. And instead of saying one apple plus one apple equals two apple, they were saying one Kalashnikov plus two Kalashnikov becomes three Kalashnikov. For example, if you divide five bombs between two people, it'd be, it's uh, uh, 10 bombs, five bombs each, like that. 
So there are examples in the book, it was like war equipment. So the, these madrasas will also, uh, they were getting training, military training uh, from, uh, uh, from uh, ISI, true ISI. And I'll talk about those later. Uh, so this, this, this is the part that basically the Taliban idea and the way it is right now, it was formed from Deobandi, school of thought, elements of Pashtunwali culture, elements of Salafi, Takfiri, and Wahhabi, all of that played a role in forming this, this way of thinking that, that the belief that right now is being enforced all over Afghanistan is, wasn't formed in Afghanistan based on Afghan values or Afghan acceptable form of Islam in Afghanistan. The acceptable form of Islam in Afghanistan is, uh, it has a lot to do with, with um, Sufism. For example, in Afghanistan, Shia and Sunni, uh, they overlap. You go to Mazar-e-Sharif, it's a Sunni city, but the shrine of, of Ali is in there. He's a leader of Shia. And all Muslims from all over Afghanistan go there for prayer in Mazar-e-Sharif, Shia and Sunni. We didn't have a segregation between Sh Shiism and Sun Sunnism in Afghanistan. And Qandar, for example, there are uh, shrines of Shia. Uh, and uh, we have Khanaqah. Khanaqah is the people go for zikr uh, Friday nights and they do zikr. Uh, those are all Sufism in Afghanistan. Still, women go in Kabul city to Shaidu Shamshira Masjid Mosque in the center of the city and they tie a little cloth and they say, give me uh, whatever, a fortune, a money or work or job or, or children or a son. So these are all elements of Sufism. We don't have in Afghanistan uh, uh, um, basically a school of, uh, Afghanistan didn't go through a structured Islam like Iran, for example. They are a Shia country and they went through a fundamental change to become a Shia power uh, house. And the same thing with Pakistan. They separated their country based on uh, Sunni religion. And they, they're basically, their, um, their desire is to be a Muslim country uh, a, a separate country for Muslims of India. Same thing with Saudi Arabia. It's a Wahhabi state for the past 80 or 90 years. The kingdom is Wahhabis. But Afghanistan was overlapping. It wasn't like we didn't have that kind of a segregation and people were um, all living together. So in, in Peshawar, this new ideas away from the culture, unlike the Mujahideen, Mujahideen came from from an educated, uh, the, about 10% of Mujahideen were, they knew their culture, they knew their uh, um, uh, social um, uh, framework in Afghanistan, they knew their history, uh, and they just started fight against Russians. But the Taliban were not like that. Taliban were raised and, and brought and these ideas were injected in their mind in Peshawar. And, away from the Afghan culture. To them, it was very, um, it, was, it wasn't acceptable. A woman go to university or, or, or work 
for example, the Mujahideen, they knew in, in Kabul, they work with, with women in the same ministry and in the same office, and they were working together and they were going to school together, universities. They had exposure basically to, they knew their background. The Mujahideen knew their background, but the Taliban does not know their background. What they know is basically whatever they saw in, in Peshawar, and when they come for jihad in the mountains of Afghanistan and, and, and uh, just to come and fight. So that's, that's what it is uh, with, with uh, basically the ideology and what they believe. Uh, the other elements of, of Taliban existence has a lot to do with, with Pakistan and, and the ISI and what Pakistan wanted in Afghanistan. So uh, Pakistan is um, uh, basically in, in the 60s when they, they were created in the 40s, the first 20 years, they faced a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of problems from Afghan governments. At the time, for example, during the Zahir Shah kingdom, Afghanistan was the only country that didn't accept Pakistan, um, um, Pakistan membership in, in UN. Uh, Afghanistan also sent a couple of times small troops inside Bajawar Agency uh, to resolve some tribal um, tribal struggle that was an internal matter for that region. But then Afghanistan felt like this is my country, this is our country, and we are going to go and interfere in there. So at the same time, Afghanistan, because of the the Durand line, because we don't accept Durand line as a as a border. So what happens is uh, um, the Afghan governments in the 60s and 70s were supporting some elements of, of separatists in, in Pakistan. For example, Awami National Party was uh, supported, backed by Afghan governments, backed by Daoud Khan and, and Zahir Shah, and later by, uh, by the communist government too, by Nur Muhammad Taraki of Islam, I mean, Dr. Najib and all of them. Uh, so uh, Pakistan in 1973, uh, during Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, uh, decided that this struggle has to be taken inside Afghanistan. If we have an Afghanistan that's um, peaceful, that's progressive, that has a modern structure of government, a modern army, it's going to be a headache for us. Actually, we were supporting the Balochs too. Balochistan uh, is an occupied land by Pakistanis and they want their freedom. There's fight for the past 70 years, but since they don't have a lot of foreign support, we don't hear about Balochistan a lot, but Balochistan, there is a war going, there is a fight, there is people disappearing, ISI goes and suppress them, take them away and, and kill them without nobody knowing that people disappear, especially journalists and, and, and uh, uh, human rights activists and Baloch activists. So we were supporting the Pashtuns and we were supporting the Balochs. And Pakistan decided to, um, to bring the war inside Afghanistan, uh, get not the war at the time, uh, bring the problems inside Afghanistan. So Afghanistan is involved in its own struggle with its own people, and they will not have the time to basically uh, focus on Pashtun separatists or Baloch separatists. So this was Zilfiqar Ali Bhutto's idea, and they were all considering that. 
but they didn't have the mean for that. In Afghanistan in the 60s, 1964, there was um, a, a democracy, they were calling it Shahi Mashruta, which was a, a democracy that, that, that allowed other uh, political parties to, to, uh, to farm. Uh, so in 1960s, uh, there was a lot of new uh, political parties forming in Afghanistan, especially in Kabul, Kabul University. All of these students like Gulbuddin Ekmatyar, Burhanuddin Rabbani came from Badakhshan and Imam Saib, and, and same like Sayyaf, Maulawi Khalas wasn't a student, but then he was a, a Maulawi, like a Haqqani and them. They were not a student, but they were uh, part of this movement later. We can talk about that. Um, so these, there was a lot of political leftist and, and rightist. Uh, the leftists were Parcham, as, as the Parcham political party of Parcham and Khalq and, uh, and then uh, Sholay Jawed. These were the leftists and then um, um, none of these political parties, they just formed because they were political parties. These movements were student movements. So a person, uh, for example, uh, his name was Niazi. Niazi was killed in a very suspicious way, and he was supposed to be the leader of Ezbe Islami Afghanistan, which was actually the leader was um, uh, Burhanuddin Rabbani and uh, Gulbuddin Ekmatyar, and um, Ahmad Shamasud was a member, uh, but uh, then they had like a few other people, but it was led by Niazi. It was just a student movement. It wasn't a political party. They were getting into fights with the lefties, like Sholay um, Jawed with Parchamis and Khalqis. So uh, a person was killed uh, in, in, in University of Kabul University. His name was um, Saidal, and this person was killed. And uh, the government wanted to arrest, at the time it was Daoud Khan government, and he wanted to arrest Gulbuddin Ekmatyar. So, and he wanted to suppress these Islamic movements. So uh, they all ran away to Pakistan. They went in 1973 uh, to Pakistan, 35 people, including Gulbuddin Ekmatyar, uh, Burhanuddin Rabboni, and Ahmad Shah Massoud. Sayaf was supposed to go there, Ustad Sayaf, but he was arrested and he went to prison. And at the same time, Maulay Khalas and, and Haqqani uh, came and joined them. So 35 of them. So this is where Pakistan comes into play. And they were welcomed and they were kept in Peshawar. And um, uh, a book that I uh, read about this is called Ahan Posh, written by Colonel Imam. Uh, he's a Pakistani. Um, he's originally from Punjab. And he is a Pakistani uh, brigadier general. And he wrote this book because um, his involvement from day one, when these groups of uh, Afghan Islamist students migrated to Pakistan in 1973, he was involved with them from day one until, until the collapse of Taliban's first government in and when the Americans uh, were in, uh, in Afghanistan. So uh, he wrote a book, his book is called Ahan Posh. In his book, Colonel Imam says that he received a call. He was actually a commando 
a special unit first officer in uh, in Pakistan Army, and he had uh, later on he went to join the ISI, and uh, he's saying that he was very talented and he was very good due to his talent. He was chosen to go to the states and and take more courses in. Uh, um, in basically in secret service and uh, as a specialty was basically how to sabotage a government from within. So this is what he's saying. He went for training in, in America and got training from CIA on how to sabotage a government from within, how to um, uh, create a group within uh, in another country that can destroy the whole system, the economical system, and, and basically um, basically destroy a country from within so that the people become frustrated and they, um, they start fighting against their own government, things like that. So basically a sabotage um, training. So he's saying that he learned all of those tactics. He knew those from his training in Pakistan. So combined together as skills from special forces, from Pakistan army, and then um, going through this training um, for becoming an ISI officer. So he was chosen for this project. And he said at the time, the Minister of Interior in Pakistan was Nasirullah Babur. Nasirullah Babur, Babur called them and he um, told them that you're chosen specifically for this task to organize these 35 students that came from Kabul. And this is a golden opportunity for us to take the fight inside Afghanistan. So, uh, and uh, he was told that this is um, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto's idea. And Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto was the prime minister of the time in Pakistan. And uh, Nasirullah Babur, the minister of, of interior, he chose uh, Colonel Imam. His uh, real name is Sultan Amir Sultan, but uh, they call him Colonel Imam because he was the Imam or the Mullah or Maulawi and within the Taliban, and they gave him the Imam uh, name, the Imam title, but he wasn't an Imam. So Colonel Imam writes in his book that, um, that I went and met the 35 students, including Gulbuddin Akhmatyar, Burhanuddin Rabbani, and Ahmad Shah Masood. And I was told not to reveal your identity that you are from ISI. Uh, we are just uh, going to pretend that we are Pakistani government and we're trying to help them settle here. So um, based on his book, based on his book, he's saying that uh, within six months, we opened uh, training centers for, for these uh, groups. And, and later on, because of Daoud Khan's, um, Daoud Khan wanted to basically suppress the Islamic movement in Afghanistan. So about 5,000 other followers, other Islamists joined, basically the big, they take refuge in Pakistan altogether. By the time the communist uh, government came uh, in power in Kabul in 1978. From 1973 to 78, altogether, by his count, there were 5,000 
of these mujahideen in, in, in Pakistan. And they had camps, training camps for them. And Camp Khurasan, Camp Nasirbaq, Camp Babo, these camps were opened during Daud Khan time, not after the Russians came as they claim. These camps were open to train um, Ahmad Shah Massoud, uh, uh, Burhanuddin Rabwani, and Gulbuddin Ekmatyar's supporters, followers, people who came and joined the Mujahideen, basically. So after a brief training, after about a year, two years, they uh, launched them. They sent them back to Afghanistan and, and during the old Khan time. And they, um, they, had, um, uh, they were supposed to launch a coup in Afghanistan. And that was Gulbuddin Ekmatyar's job because of his influence, his contact in Ministry of Defense in Kabul. He was assigned this task to, uh, to, to launch a coup. And at the same time, Ahmad Shah Massoud at the task of taking over Panjshir and Tahar and those areas. And, and then in Lagman and Behsud and, and five areas in Afghanistan at the same time, they launched this, um, this attack. So that in other areas, they were able to, uh, to basically Ahmad Shah Massoud took over. At the time, Panjshir was only a district. It wasn't a province. It was called Uluswali Panjshir. Uluswali Panjshir was taken over by Ahmad Shah Massoud for three days, but uh, Gulbuddin Ekmatyar failed to launch the coup within the, the, the defense ministry, and that couldn't happen. So basically, their ISI plans were exposed. Uh, this political party that was formed in Raul Pindi through ISI, one point that I forgot to mention. With the help of ISI and Jamaat Islami of Pakistan, they formed a political party for these 35 students, which they call it Jamiat Islami. So Izb Islami didn't exist. It was called Jamiat Islami. The leader was Burhanuddin Rabuni, and his uh, second in command was uh, was was Gulbuddin Ekmatyar. So they went back to Pakistan. They retrieved and went back to Pakistan. And this is the point when. Ahmad Shah Massoud and Gulbuddin Akhmatyar uh, split because the rest of them believe that Gulbuddin Akhmatyar didn't do his job, he couldn't launch the coup, and we were exposed. We took Panjshir over, we went in Lakman and fought, but they didn't, Gulbuddin Akhmatyar didn't do anything. So this is when they split, and Gulbuddin Akhmatyar forms his own political party called Izb Islami. Although he didn't agree, a lot of people don't agree that. Jamiat Islami came into existence first. But based on, I'm strictly talking about uh, Colonel Imam book, based on his, his um, uh, whatever his statements in the book, Jamiat Islami was formed, not Isb Islami. So, uh, and then uh, Colonel Imam talks about the rest of the training, the training went on. Uh, there was uh, actually a visit uh, from Zulfiqar al Ali Boto, he went to Kabul and visited Dawood and the difference were, were resolved. And Colonel Imam says in his book that, um, that uh, Zulfiqar Ali Boto, through, uh, being, uh, through um, uh, the Minister of Interior, uh, Nasirullah Babur, told him that we are stopping this campaign of, of training the Mujahideen uh, because we came to certain agreement with Dawood Khan and the problems are resolved. But he admits, Colonel Imam admits that the ISI 
and especially some elements of ISI didn't stop the training. So he said, I still had the contact with them and we continued with helping them and training them and meeting their needs and stuff, but not openly anymore. Uh, but the official line of the government was not to support them. ISI and the Pakistani army continued to support these people. So anyways, on his book, he doesn't talk anymore about what happened in the five years. And he's talking about the training being continued. And, and they had 5,000 people that they were training. And the plan was to launch uh, another coup or another um, struggle within Afghanistan, another insurgency um, plan to, to destabilize Afghanistan. So Afghanistan is not able to support the Balochs and, and the uh, Pashtun separatists. And then he's talking about a golden opportunity that came to in the hand of Pakistan when the Russian invaded and 3 million refugees came. To, to Pakistan, he's saying now in a state of 5,000, we had 3 million to work with. So we had a, an army of 3 million to pick in, in them and, and train and, and send back to Afghanistan to destabilize Afghanistan. And uh, by the way, the communist leaders, they were also into uh, low Afghanistan and, and the fight for the Durand line and not recognizing Durand line and support of Balochs and support of, of the Pashtun separatists. Uh, so uh, that didn't change with, with Russians coming to Afghanistan. It was actually reinforced. So Pakistan felt more threatened because now a superpower was, was, was beside uh, the Afghans. Uh, so Colonel Imam says that this uh, basically is training. He was responsible for training. And there were other 200 ISI uh, officers, generals, and other uh, army officers and ISI officers. They had different responsibilities. And they had, you know, they were responsible for planning. They were responsible for accommodating or whatever other areas that the Mujahideen needed. Uh, but his responsibility was only the training, the training part of the Mujahideen. He had training camps, and he's saying from 1973 to um, 1992, when the Mujahideen went and uh, uh, Dr. Najib government collapsed, he's saying altogether and within his office capacity, he trained 95,000 Mujahideen. So um, he doesn't talk anymore about other things that happened between that time. And then he goes to 1985. Uh, so in 1985, but life went like normal for him. He was training the Mujahideen. He was, you know, the, the war was going. So uh, in 1995, he said, he's saying that he received another call from, uh, from ISI to come and, uh, and attend a meeting. We are discussing a very serious matter and we chose you for a new project. Uh, he, he goes there and he's told that the Mujahideen, um, like Ahmad Shah Massoud and other groups like Hizb Islami, Jamiat Islami and all of them. Um, so he's told that these Mujahideens are becoming more independent. They have their own contact with 
with other countries. They have their own relationship with, for example, with Iran, with France, with England, with America. Sometimes they don't listen to what we say. Uh, they are going a little out of control. We need to work on another group that's more loyal to us. And they are not from uh, an educated segment of Afghan society and they are more religious and they have to basically be um, uh, a puppet of, of ISI and whatever we chose, um, it should be a group that, that will listen to us and not to what, and, and will not build like relationship with other countries and, and, and do things according to, uh, to our plans. So, uh, and then uh, Colonel Imam says that he, he chose Arakate and Qalab Islami, which is a political party and the leader name was Maulawi Muhammad Nabi Muhammadi. Um, Colonel Imam said he was a very loyal person to Pakistan and his, his forces, his Mujahideen, uh, they were as fighters were more uh, very traditionalist Afghans. They were not educated in schools, they were more educated in madrasas and in masjids and mosques. And he wasn't, uh, uh, his, his, his Mujahideen was more uh, Maulawis and Mullahs and, and Qari and, and those type of people. So uh, he was the best candidate to approach. So, um, so his idea, like Colonel um, Imam says, I thought about it. And I came up with, uh, with an idea to select about 50 people that are not educated in the schools. They are very much into like traditional Islamic values with a very narrow mind view of, of, of Islam. And, and they went, they are educated, they are uh, but in madrasas and in, in, uh, in masjids in mosques and another condition they have to be single young energetic and in a way very um, uh, good fighters and all of that so he went and gave those conditions to maulana um, uh, to maulawi muhammad nabi muhammadi um, he came up with 60 names uh, so he chose 60 people from his his political party, 60 fighters, and gave it to, to Colonel Imam. Uh, Colonel Imam says that I took these people and went through a training. And after about six months, I dropped the rest of them and I kept only 35 people. On those 35 people, he gave some of the names. They're all Taliban leaders. Maulana, um, uh, Mullah Omar, uh, Mullah Hassan, Mullah Mullah Raboni, Mullah Burjan, and all of the Taliban cabinet in 1994, basically, 96, they were all in his, in his list. So he picked those people, and they were about 18, 19, 20 years old at the time. And, uh, and he's saying he trained them in the way that he was trained. And, in ISI for special forces, for uh, commando training, for sabotaging things, techniques that he learned in, 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 IS, in, in CIA in America. 
So he's saying that um, they had the capability to basically build a bomb from a kitchen in, in an ordinary kitchen equipment in somebody's household. You can build a, a using baking soda and detergent and salt and whatever that exists in a kitchen. You can build a bomb. And uh, the training that he provided to, to these leaders of Taliban, to this 35 uh, people group, uh, they are familiar and capable of using any weapon that existed at the time. They are capable of doing any work that basically skills that you need to sabotage a government, a system from within, stop their, their economy, uh, the cycle of economy, and, and, um, and use resources from the, within this country within a country to, to support yourself financially without relying upon uh, ISI or Pakistan or any country for that matter. So be self-sufficient. And they, um, at this point, Colonel the mom says, I told them that they can use, um, uh, they can use um, poppies basically and, and uh, narcotic for, to make money and support the, the fight. So he's saying one of them told me that one of them asked me, it's we are Muslim and we are fighting for a jihad and this is a narcotic. We we can't do that. This is haram. So he's saying I told him that for years you're fighting for the big cause for Allah and using any mean, any uh, any way to finance this big cause is permitted to you. So after that, they were fine with that. And they basically actually, during the fight, they actually, Taliban did use narcotic as a um, source to support their, their fight. Uh, so, um, so he's saying that training was over and it took uh, quite a, some time and, and these people were ready. And, but we were scared of them because their skills, their capabilities were such that they could be a danger to Pakistan if they turned against Pakistan to do a lot of damage and within the Pakistani society, government in the country. Uh, so he's saying I came with another uh, thought that they should be kept this way. And I was told there are no use for them, just get them ready. So we didn't have any use for them. Some of them were joining the Mujahideen, going back and forth to Afghanistan and fight and coming back. But a lot of them were staying in Peshawar. And he, is, uh, he said that he assigned a, a Maulavi, a religious scholar. And this religious scholar duty was to keep this 30 group of 35, their mentality very strict within the Islamic, within the traditional values, don't allow them to, to read anything outside of Islam, any book or, or modern education or anything. So basically to keep them kind of tunneled vision towards whatever the ISI trained them and brainwashed them, that's how they maintain. And then uh, he's saying they were always with that Maulavi with that religious leader and they were always under his supervision and he did a good job and maintained them uh, that mentality and they kept them that way for the rest of the time. 
Uh, then he doesn't talk about what happened in this job, his regular work that was training Mujahideen. It went on. And then all of, he jumps to 1994. So in 1994, he's saying he got a call again from the ISI and uh, were, was told to, um, there is another assignment for you. Uh, the group of 35 that you created in 1985, gather them, organize them. Uh, and this is the time when Mujahideen were fighting with each other and over Kabul and Gulbuddin Ekmatyar was launching rockets in Kabul city and Ahmad Shama Sudan, Burhanuddin Rabbani was in Kabul. Um, the, all these different functions of Mujahideen were, were fighting with each other. Uh, so uh, Colonel Imam was told that um, we were relying on, uh, on Gulbuddin Ekmatyar to take over because um, Masood and, and Rabani, they were getting very close to India and they are forming an alliance with India. And this is not something that we want. And Ekmatyar is not capable of, of doing any, any, bringing any change in Afghanistan. He has failed to, to cause a collapse of that government and take over Kabul. So bring your 30 group of 35 into play and we have to uh, do something um, in Afghanistan uh, using this group. So, um, so Colonel Imam says he goes to Spinbolak, to Chaman in Quetta in uh, southern Pakistan near Kandahar. And uh, he knew that Mullah Muhammad Umar was in Nauday in Kandahar and he had a little madrasa, about 10 people, one room, uh, um, like a little clay kind of a room and then they were there teaching just like the traditional suburban Afghan masjid kind of a thing. So um, he knew about them and he, he, he was in contact with a bunch of um, that group of 35, but not with all of them. So he went to, to, to Chaman and he pretended that he went there to teach students in, um, in a spin bowl that teach them um, uh, in masjids, teach them in mosque, at, at the mosques. Uh, he was pretending that he was an imam and teaching them Quran and, and whatever else they needed. So, but his actual job was to gather the Taliban, uh, that group of 35 and, and launch an attack. So uh, over time, he, he gathered them, uh, built contact. He stayed in, in, in Spinboldak and Chaman, those areas for six months. And then eventually they went to Nowday to see, uh, to see Mulama Madumar. So they met Mulama Madumar and he's saying that there was a, a boy, a very good looking young boy with green eyes. And they, he was always with Mulama Madumar. And then I joke with him, oh, you keep a, a child boy too, uh, you're a, a mullah. And then his, his other friends, Mullah Muhammad Umar's friend, they jokingly told him, oh, why doesn't have a heart to keep a boy with him? So that was kind of a joke between them. But anyways, so, and, uh, so they, 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 they put a plan together. And the plan was because at the time, Mujahideen were fighting with each other and they were, they had like these um, 
these uh, groups of different ethnic groups, different political party groups, different commanders, commandano, these people, they were all collecting, collecting money from transportation, from people. There was all the time uh, checkpoints um, that the drivers, the truck drivers, they were stopped all over Afghanistan. It wasn't just unique to Kandahar, all over Afghanistan. They were collecting money from from uh, from especially the goods transportation and and uh, tracking industry. So these uh, tracking industry, they were basically fed up with it. Like the, the cost of the cost of running a business in Afghanistan was huge because of um, different people everywhere, even like different ethnicity, different villages, whoever at power, uh, commander was there and with a few people with this group stopping tracks and, and transportation and collecting money from them. So there was a checkpoint between Kandahar and Naudeh where, where uh, Mullah Muhammad Amar was staying. Uh, there were two checkpoints. Uh, so the plan was to just go in and, uh, and fight them and take over the checkpoint. It belonged to, um, to Izb Islami, Gulbuddin Akhmatyar. Uh, so they basically went there and attacked that checkpoint and took over. Uh, so that was a success, but this boy, the green-eyed child, child boy of Mulama Madamar gets killed. So Mulama Madamar loved this boy a lot, and he was like really crying. He was like um, uh, very upset about it. And uh, the next day, Colonel Imam in his book says that we were on the way to from one place to another place in a car, and there were other mullahs sitting in the car, and uh, Mulama Madamar. Uh, wasn't talking at all, his eyes were red, and this other mullah was smoking um, chars or marijuana. And um, so they were uh, like really upset and Mullah Mother told them that we have to take revenge of this boy. And this, the commander or the other mullah agreed, yes, we will do. So the next attack was to get rid of the other checkpoint. And this was based on a revenge. So a lot of people talk about in, uh, there are other uh, people that think that Mullah Muhammad Umar started his fight because there was some uh, boy that another commander of Mujahideen, they took this, um, this boy for basically it's kind of a sex slave and they were are raping a woman or something like that. Um, and this is how Mullah Muhammad Umar or Taliban came exist in, in existing because they went on, defend of, on defense of this girl or a boy. Some people say it was a boy. Some people say it was a girl. But based on Colonel Imam book, it wasn't such a thing. This was because Mullah Muhammad Umar's child boy was killed on that first attack. This is basically his book. Um, there are other, like I said, there are other people with different, they, they come up with different reason for Taliban. Um, uh, the start of the fight, basically, the Taliban, when the Taliban attacked this checkpoint. But anyway, so this, this was a success and they were um, um, kind of popular in the area now. And the tracking industry, the Quetta or Quetta, Quetta tracking industry, they were very fed up with 
with these checkpoints and giving money every five kilometers to different groups of, of Mujahideen. These were the first people before ISI, actually, the first people who financed Taliban. And this is based on, on, uh, on Ahmad Rashid book, Ahmad Rashid, Taliban, Oil and, and Muslim Militancy. Um, this is based on his book. The Quetta transportation tracking industry was the first people who gave money to Taliban to clear the way between Kandar and Spinboldak. They told them, okay, you cleaned it between Naude and Kandar. Can you clean this area so we can freely move? We will give you money. And instead of giving 10 other groups of Mujahideen, we'll just give you money. So, um, uh, and then uh, uh, based on his count, uh, they gave them at the time, 200 million Af Afghanis, which wasn't that much money at the time. The value of Afghan rupees was really low, the Afghani. So they gave them money and they successfully cleaned, cleared the, 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 the distance between uh, Spinbolek and Kandahar. This was a big achievement for them. This is when they become popular. And then uh, the ISIs in the Ministry of Interior um uh, they they were actually they were starting to trust this movement and um, and then uh, actually based on 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 Colonel Imam, he's like we were not that powerful we just became uh, luckily we became popular there was news in in BBC and that had a lot of impact the publicity that we got from western media from BBC and, and uh, CNN talking about this new group, this had more impact than what we were really were. We were not powerful at all. We were just a few people. And then they, um, they, uh, they attacked eventually Kandahar and they took over Kandahar over. When they took over Kandahar, this is when he's saying that the media and everything, we became the focus of media, Western media, and the regional media and everything. So this is when, um, uh, based on, on Taliban book from Ahmad Rashid, he's saying uh, there was a, a plan in Afghanistan to run a pipeline or a route of transportation through Jalalabad, through Torham, through central uh, Afghanistan through Salang valleys and and north uh, to uh, Middle Asia or Central Asia, but that failed, and this was a struggle to 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 basically connect Pakistan to to Central Asia, and it failed because of the war, because of the Mujahideen, because of the fight between Ahmad Shah Massoud and Gulbuddin Nikmatyar and the, the other. We decided to connect Spin Boldak to Islam Qala. Um, I, I, I don't want to be wrong. Well, the border that connects Afghanistan to, to, um, to Turkmenistan. Uh, I'm not sure if it's called Islam Qala or, or something else, but I may remember the correct name. But anyways, the idea was to connect uh, Spin Boldak to Turkmenistan. And Turkmenistan is a very resourceful country out of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan. Turkmenistan has the, the largest oil reserve and, uh, and everything else. 
so uh, their plan was basically to take over Herat, Kandahar, and Farah, those areas to connect, leave the other part of Afghanistan, just connect Pakistan to Central Asia. And they, they did a test run, 35 trucks from uh, army base in, in Quetta. They were loaded with, uh, with um, pharmaceutical, uh, with, with medicines basically. And, and the plan was take them to Turkmenistan and from Turkmenistan bring back uh, cottons, fabrics and cottons to build a transportation line. And it was a test run uh, and, and relying on, on Taliban, how they do. So the Taliban were actually uh, took responsibility of that. And Taliban, um, that, 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 that column of, of, of pharmaceutical goods started, and, but the, the, the drivers and, and all the personnel that was carrying, they were army officer with civilian clothes, uh, um, Pakistani army officers. Uh, they were not, um, they were pretending that they were just truck drivers, but they were not, they were, they were army officers. So these truck, trucks were stopped at near a uh, uh, little mountain near uh, Kandahar airport. And they were stopped by, Mullah, by Mansur, Commandant Mansur, which is Gulbuddin Nikmatyar, Islamic, Isb Islami commander. And, and apparently he is General Razak's uncle, uh, but, but it's not in the book. It's my own personal information that, that he was General Razak's uncle as well. So this, this, um, these 35 trucks were stopped there. And, and then Pakistani army, they start to worry about uh, uh, what, what will happen to these trucks and the drivers and the army officers. So they wanted to launch uh, um, they wanted to use their own special force to res rescue these trucks, but Mullah Muhammad Umar took responsibility and that we, we are, and he said, we are going to do it. So Mullah Muhammad Umar came with his, with his uh, fighters and basically uh, took these trucks away from Mullah Mansur and they hang Mullah Mansur on, on the barrel of the tank, of a tank. So this was the first time that Afghanistan see a hanging, a public hanging. And that it's very popular, it's all over the place. And people say, um, Commandant Mansur, Commander Mansur was hanged on the bar barrel of the tank. And that was a kind of a signature of Taliban. They did it over and over again. And they still talk about hanging people from the barrel of the tank. It's based on that story. So these, these checkpoints were, taken away basically it was contracted to 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 Taliban Taliban when they're saying we got rid of pataks they call it pataka but these are actually checkpoints and 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 uh, they got rid of it and based on um, Aisha Ahmad's book uh, it's called Jihad and Co uh, she has written a book uh, after a big study and investigation about these lawless countries like Afghanistan and Somalia and Sudan. So in all of these countries, it's the same thing for transportation, for businessmen, it's very expensive to operate in those countries. So uh, based on her book, she's saying that this is, this is a business. 
So one group, a powerful Islamic group, typically in these countries, the businessman, the trucking industry, the trucking mafia bribed them, gave them money to get rid of the small uh, checkpoints. So this is exactly what happened in Afghanistan. One big group, one powerful group was created um, to get rid of uh, the, the, the other checkpoints, but they are also a checkpoint. Basically, they are one organization, one, one group that's taking money. They are still taking money from the transportation industry, from tracking maf mafia. So this is how Taliban, and then after that, the plan was to take Herat because Herat was also on the way between Spinboldak and in Turkmenistan. So their second target was Herat and they took Herat. But this is the time when they, um, actually at the time they attacked Kandahar, there were 200 students that came from, from madrasas to help them, Pakistani students from Quetta Madrasa, from Chaman. So this tradition started helping the Taliban by religious students from madrasas. And when they attacked Herat, there were 5,000 uh, students from madrasas from, from Peshawar came to help them. And then later, later on, when they were launching attack on Mazar Sharif, uh, another uh, 15,000 came to help them. And at the time, Maulana um, Fazal Rahman uh, closed all the madrasas all over the Pakistan and told them to go help Taliban. So they went on basically um, kind of a, a lockdown all over, all over um, Pakistan and their students were sent to help Taliban. That's why we were seeing a lot of Taliban students, the Taliban, uh, Pakistani Taliban during the first government of Taliban because they were coming from the madrasas. Most of them, some of them were Kashmiris coming to help them from Kashmir and then the Arabs and uh, Al-Qaeda members and all of them. So basically, uh, Colonel Imam, the rest of his book is about how, uh, with the help of uh, Pakistani um, uh, students from madrasas, Pakistan political parties like Jamaat Islami, with the help of RSI, they, uh, they successfully launched operation all over Afghanistan and they took all, all over Afghanistan. One thing that he also mentions mentioned during his um, the selection of Amirul Muminin. Uh, he is saying when that was happening in Kandahar, um, Colonel Imam brought um, brought clerics from all over Afghanistan, especially from Loy Kandahar and from the Pashtun built, and uh, they were voting to select an Amir, Amirul Muminin. So Amir al-Mu'minin was based on his book. It was kind of a fake selection. So what happened? Uh, they were supposed to. Um, they gathered these clerics. Uh, nobody, no foreigner was allowed in there except him, and except the ambassador of, of of Pakistan in Afghanistan at the time. He was also invited. So these were the only two foreigners, uh, and uh, that day. Uh, there was supposed to be uh, an election among these clerics to select the, the Amir al-Mu'minin. There was another candidate, I forgot his name, but there was another candidate and, and they realized that their 
um, they, uh, there is a chance, big chance that this other person will be selected, which he wasn't ISI man. So what uh, um, Colonel Imam did that night during that selection, um, uh, he went and told Maulana, uh, uh, Omar to stop this, uh, just tell them there is an emergency, he has to attend the emergency, so we will set another day, we will come. So before even they started that selection of Amirul Muminin, this session was stopped, stopped and then, um, uh, Colonel Imam on his book says that we went and worked with a lot of the clerics and with the students and we went to travel in madrasas and bought votes and everything. So the next time when the selection happens, one of the people were given assigned a task to, to just a, 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 a person from one of the ethnic groups, a well-known leader basically was assigned to just say this is Amirul Muminin is is Mullah Muhammad Umar and and it was kind of a setup. So what happened when that night when they were selecting the Amirul Muminin during the selection, all of a sudden this person stands and says Amirul Muminin Mullah Muhammad Umar and everybody just follows him without even going through that selection properly. Just because this guy declared him before even the selection was happening, he became. Uh, Amir al-Mumineen. So this was kind of a setup. So the rest of his book basically is talking about how they helped uh, all over Afghanistan, the ISI, the, the, the Jamaat Islami Pakistan, with the help of the students, they took over all over Afghanistan and they launched attacks. And, and he also talks about how they captured, for example, Jalalabad airport and, and, and then came to, to Kabul, took over Kabul, uh, so at this point, I will stop uh, and, and see if you have any questions for me. Um, basically, this is how Taliban was created and, and their ideology and, and their existence. Uh, so I'll wait for your questions. Thank you so much for that extremely extensive answer. Um, you covered so many different bases, so many periods in time. Uh, and so many points of contention that still exist uh, amongst uh, Afghans, but also amongst people studying Afghanistan. You know, there's so much um, uncertainty and questions, and uh, especially with regards to the Taliban. So thank you for your wonderful, extensive answer. Um, uh, I guess a follow-up uh, to that would be that uh, given um, how... Uh, when the British were conquering Afghanistan and um, Afghanistan waged uh, three wars of independence, uh, the first uh, Anglo-Afghan war, the second Anglo-Afghan war, and the third. Uh, after the second one, uh, when the British were successful and they tried to consolidate uh, the colonial rule or de facto colonial rule of Afghanistan, um, what ended up happening was um, uh, Britain essentially partitioning Afghanistan, uh, taking parts of Afghanistan uh, into British Raj or British India, uh, which was um, Pakistan at the time, uh, a part of. Uh, and um, following that, they established the Duran line that divided uh, British India and Afghanistan. 
so this Duran line, as you mentioned uh, in your talk as well, has been a point of contention between the two countries, Afghanistan and Pakistan today, uh, throughout um, uh, the period following the Second World War, especially when India gained its independence and um, you know the two the two neighboring countries of Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan, they were um, at odds with each other. Of course, uh, Pakistan was formed following the partition of India. Uh, so the question that comes to mind is um, the two pillars of Taliban's ideology that you talked about. Uh, did you bind these school of thought uh, and Pashtunwali? Uh, and given uh, that the border that was carved up by the British Empire between Afghanistan and Pakistan, that essentially divides uh, the Pashtun population um, very strategically. This is you know, how the British Empire moved. Uh, in your opinion, what significance does the Duran line have in the mobilization framework and strengthening of the Taliban group today, which uh, is predominantly a Pashtun ethnic group, as you talked about, um, and how you see um, this mobilization um, fomenting uh, Pakistan's interests uh, that you touched on in terms of them establishing trade routes to uh, Central Asia, to places like um, the resource-rich um, Turkmenistan, for example. Um, yes, the Duran line is playing a, a, a significant role in everything that's happening in Afghanistan. Um, so uh, based on what we see in the past hundred years, every government in Afghanistan that's trying to become uh, institutionalized and it becomes like a real modern system of governance, uh, are, are especially the, um, the armed forces like the Minister of, Ministry of Defense and Interior and uh, Security Services, the secret police and Pakistan does not want a strong government in Afghanistan. It goes back to the Duran line and, and they believe any, any government in Afghanistan that's independent, that is modern, that is a proper modern system of governance and, and with a structured uh, proper army will eventually uh, become close to India, align with India, and it will become, uh, Pakistan will become isolated. And also the, the Pakistani, the, the Pakistani army establishment, although there is a lot of talk about economic, regional economic progress, there is talk about Afghanistan becoming a roundabout, like Ashraf Ghani was saying, round, roundabout of Asia, and it's a it's about connectivity of the region. They all know that, like people like Imran Khan, like Qureshi, they know that Afghanistan, a peaceful Afghanistan, a prosperous Afghanistan is good for Pakistan economy. It connects China, Pakistan, Central Asia um, to Middle East where there's a lot of money and then there is a lot of happening in, in, in China and Central Asia resourceful. And Afghanistan is in the middle of all of this. It is good for everybody. We all know that, and they know that too. But the military establishment in Pakistan, they know that too. But they say, okay, 
prosperous Afghanistan, prosperous Pakistan, that's good. Economically powerful Pakistan and Afghanistan, they help each other. They, they would prosper, they would be both good. But then what happens? A powerful Afghanistan, a pro, uh, progress, uh, a prosperous Afghanistan will support the separatists. So they, they are ready to pay for the lack of economic progress in Pakistan. They, they are willing to not connect their country to Central Asia. By other means, they are connecting it through, uh, you know, uh, backdoor like illegal um, trade and stuff like that. But they, they based on, on what they calculate, uh, a prosperous Afghanistan is a headache for them in future. So they are willing to pay for that and not allow, like Pakistan is very comfortable when Afghanistan is run by militia group, by unprofessional ministers. Like for example, the ministers we have right now in Afghanistan, Minister of Higher Education, Minister of uh, Internal Affairs, Minister of Foreign Affairs, they are all basically rooting out these uh, these uh, system because they are not, they are all, they were all fighters. All they did was jihad in the past 35, 40 years. The, even if they had education, first of all, they don't. Even if they have the skills, they don't have the expertise, they don't have the, the, the experience to run a ministry. And um, obviously that's going to damage. Pakistan is very comfortable when Afghanistan is run by this type of unprofessional jihadist militia groups without having an organized army uh, due to uh, the danger that they feel like I said, a progress, a progressive Afghanistan and economically powerful Afghanistan, they see that as a danger and they see that eventually aligned with India. And experience shows that every government eventually aligned with India. Ahmad Shah Massoud and, and uh, Boronidin Rabboni, when they were in Peshawar, well, Ahmad Shah Massoud wasn't there, but I mean, Jamiat Islami was there. They were so much against India they, because India didn't support the Mujahideen cause at the time. They were on the Russian Soviet Union pact. And actually it was to the point that when we were living in, in Peshawar at the time, if somebody, an Afghan living in India was targeted, blamed for living in India under a, uh, like basically a country uh, in a country that doesn't support Mujahideen. And, and has good uh, relationship with the communist government. So this is how bad their relationship was. But when they came to Afghanistan in power, the first country uh, Burhanuddin Rabbani government aligned with was India. Same thing with happened from Zaire Shah time until now. And I believe even Taliban, to come back to your question, even Taliban, if they are real Afghan and they want to work for their country and they institutionalize the army and other institutions, Pakistan will feel threatened. And eventually, like in my opinion, Daesh Khorasan, the ISIS-K is created to basically uh, another option for Pakistan. It's created by ISI. ISI always has two, three, more than one player in Afghanistan. They created 
Jamiat Islami after that they created Isb Islami. So they had two people for, to work for them. Later on, still, they were supporting Jamiat Islami and Isb Islami, but they created like in 1985, they created Taliban. So they always have more than one option. Taliban was created, now there is another player, ISIS-K. ISIS-K is basically a replacement of Taliban. Now the Taliban is a government, slowly they are going to, being a Pashtun, being, we already hear a lot about some Taliban saying that, oh, we are going to go back to Pakistan and fight because this is a, a Kufr government, this is Yazidi, Yahudi government, and they have like, you know, um, Fahasha and whatever, they have like corruption, they are like, uh, there is a lot going in there, um, um, immoral things, and we are going to fight in Pakistan. And some of them come in TV, for example, um, General Mubin, he frequently appears in TV in Afghanistan saying that the, 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 this is a country that opened uh, the, their borders, uh, their ports to NATO, to Americans to bring weapon and fight us. But now they shut their border for our pomegranate and, and, and our um, grapes uh, to, to go back to their country. They shut down the trade, but they opened for 20 years their borders and, and supported the invasion of Amer America. And uh, this, is, this is basically that mentality already exists. And some of them openly say that they don't recognize during uh, the, the Durand line. So over time, it will become a problem between, uh, between Pakistan and Taliban, especially if the Taliban try to, uh, to become a proper government in Afghanistan. And if there is an opportunity for Taliban to connect with the rest of the world, to connect and then the trade start, and then there is like economic uh, prosperity, and then there is investment, foreigners come and visit and other Afghans come and visit. This is all Pakistan will feel threatened. In 2003, Pakistan, you say that we feel threatened because of Afghanistan had a, had a growth in their GDP 21% at one point. And Pakistan said this was, this was something we didn't want. This is one of the reason they say we started supporting Taliban again. Similar with, with the Russians, the Russians say when we saw Afghanistan progressing so fast under under the American occupation, we didn't want Afghanistan to, to become a good example for the other Central Asian countries. So we, we, we stopped supporting the Americans, the war against terrorism and support, start supporting Taliban. Same thing with Iran. Iran didn't want Afghanistan to become an example of a progressive, independent or economically um, independent country and uh, under uh, with the American presence in there, this was a this would have had an impact on Iran, and the Iranians would have wanted something similar. And so all of these countries joined forces to stop Afghanistan from becoming a a, a progressive, uh, prosperous country. And and eventually, uh, what's happening right now is slowly the Pakistanis, the, the Taliban will realize that the Pakistanis are playing double game. Uh, today, actually, there is a news in CNN. Last night at seven o'clock, there was an article in CNN that they came into an agreement with, with Pakistan to, uh, to allow 
uh, American flights directly through Pakistan going into Afghanistan for surveillance, for taking uh, for drone attacks and everything else. So um, Taliban realizes that Pakistan is playing a double role. Taliban is still, uh, uh, Pakistanis are still allowing the American access their, their um, skies uh, over the horizon, as they say, uh, to access Afghanistan. And it will become a problem. The Durian land will become a problem. The trade will become a problem. And slowly, uh, they will um, uh, get closer to India, just like all the other governments has done. And, and ICE is a new player to replace, um, to replace um, Taliban. Wonderful. Um, thank you for your answer once again. And um, I guess, you know, throughout your talk, I was thinking uh, about what role the geographic position of Afghanistan plays. And, um, you know, it, it, around it, you have so many superpowers, you have nuclear powers like Pakistan, like China, uh, like Russia, like India, and also uh, big powers like Iran. Um, and this whole Eurasian uh, continent, uh, if we were to call it that, um, has so many different uh, players and interests uh, that um, Afghanistan is in the middle of. So uh, every single one of them will have their own interests in Afghanistan. Uh, so given uh, Afghanistan's geographic positioning uh, and the fact that Afghanistan, as you mentioned uh, earlier on uh, in your speech, uh, that uh, Afghanistan has always had a rich diversity of different cultures, ethnicities, religious identities and traditions, which have both influenced and shaped the country. How do you see the foundations uh, and beliefs of the Taliban that uh, you discussed, such as the Dubandi School of Religious Interpretation and the, their interpretation of the Pashtun Mali Code, uh, reconciling with this reality of Afghanistan uh, for the Taliban to then create a governance system which will be more inclusive uh, and respectful of the inherent diversity of the country. Uh, and to follow it up, uh, how successful do you think this could be and if there are any obstacles, um, what kind of challenges would they provide for the Taliban in the future? Um, yeah, the Taliban are a group that's mainly, basically, they, they took fighters based on, on a few um, things that they, they were actually um, saying to their fighters. And some of their fighters are, um, one thing that we should remember, even even though this is not a democratic system and they don't take vote from, from people, uh, but they take, in a way, they are influenced by what their fighters want. I heard actually a couple of years, there was a program in TV1 in Afghanistan uh, with uh, Mr. Lashkari and he brought Maulawi Qalamuddin. He was a minister uh, during the first Taliban government in 94. And um, they were talking about, you know, how, why they did what they, they were doing to women and to young people and to, you know, forcing people to go to masjid and, and uh, whatever other else that Taliban were doing. So he's like, we were actually, this is what our fighters wanted. We couldn't just 
tell our even though we wanted to bring change we wanted to give certain freedom to women a certain freedom of other things that they banned at the time for example from running kite running to music to everything so he said some of these changes we wanted in the leadership but we couldn't because our fighters would have gone away because they were fighting for these things so right now the the, the fighters are some of them they believe they, they came and joined them to suppress women basically honestly they their their way of life they're from small villages they don't women are not supposed to go or, or go to school in remote villages there's no school actually and they don't feel like that the necessity they don't feel it they say okay my my sister never to, went to school she's fine she got married she has children she has a place to live so why why every other woman cannot do the same thing and they feel they feel a risk when they allow women to go to school they think if a woman go to school they become educated and then they they work in offices and then they come home later you know go leave in the morning and come home in the evening and um, and then as they say someday they will appear in tv and talk you know about rights and stuff so this is what their rank and files want and taliban are in a very difficult situation in one way, they want to satisfy the, um, the, the urban population need for women right, human rights, and the demand from foreign countries, from uh, UN and European countries and, and whatever other countries, Western countries. Uh, so they want to be kind of accommodating to them, that's why in Kabul they are they're a little nicer. They're, I mean, they have media, and although the media is a little suppressed, but still there is media. There are some women uh, news anchors, and there are like um, uh, women go for shopping, and they didn't make them wear uh, chaudhary or veil like last time. So, and then there is music, and and weddings still there is music. So in a way, they have accepted certain, it seems like they're trying to accommodate, slowly accommodate, and maybe by the time their fighters uh, now staying in Kabul in big cities and uh, in big urban populations, they probably get used to these, the city life slowly and change. Maybe they are hoping to change slowly or um, there is possibility that they go back to uh, a very restrict form of life that they had, like those um, policies that they had in 1996 to 2001. Uh, but the, the, the key point is that their fighters, unlike 1996 uh, to 2001, now they have a rival, they have Daesh, they have the ISIS-K, the ISIS-K is an option for the, those fighters that they went joint Taliban based on the, the, the idea that the Taliban will ban women from going to school, for example, or any, any, any element of Western way of life, like clothing or music or whatever, you know, appearance or hairstyle. Uh, so all of this, some of them, they just went for these values. 
uh, and joined Taliban and ISIS being a more, uh, more kind of a, a little even more, uh, more fundamentalist and more radical than, than Taliban, uh, Taliban fighter can easily join ISIS, which is a big risk. It has always been for Taliban. Taliban are fully aligned with ISIS. There is no difference in their ideology. They're, they want the same kind of a system of government and freedom and everything. The only thing that, that causes them to, to fight with each other is because Taliban feel threatened because ISIS easily can take, take away their fighters. And the, the, the fact that one wants Emirat, the other wants Khilafat. So if Khilafat is there, Khalifa is there, basically they, it's like a, the whole Muslim world has to be ruled under the Khalifa. And the Emirat is one specific, a local thing for Afghanistan. So that's their only difference. So the thing, the fact that ISIS exists now is a danger for Taliban to answer the demands of foreign countries like our neighbors in, 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 uh, in Europe. Um, the Taliban has changed a little from what we see. At least they, they take pictures, they take videos, they have exposure to internet. They are being, they, in their way, they, they become, I'm not saying they become better, they, they have changed. They have become a, a smarter version of themselves. It doesn't mean they have improved their ideas, their, their um, ideology has changed. They have become a smarter, a more uh, modern version of themselves that they are more familiar with, with, with technology and they have traveled the world. Thank you. Um, and, and yes, uh, that's something that is quite noticeable, this, um, almost a uh, factionalism within the Taliban uh, that you could say you have the more progressive side relative, as you said, to what they were. And of course the uh, expectations or the bar of standard is very low for that, but still like you have the group that um, were attending the Doha peace talks uh, in Qatar who saw perhaps uh, a Muslim majority country that had progressive uh, values while still maintaining the Islamic uh, Sunni values at the same time. Uh, and, you know, they could see progress in society. So they would have brought that back uh, into uh, Afghanistan to try to em emulate it in their own way. Um, but at the same time, on the other side, it's also noticeable that you have the hardline group, uh, like the Haqqani faction, that mm. favors war. And this was the something that UN discussed, that Haqqanis didn't want the war to end based off of peace talks. They wanted a full-on military defeat for the occupational forces of US and NATO. So there is a friction uh, between the two sides. And as you mentioned, there's also the emergence of uh, ISKP now, who can draw from disgruntled members of the Taliban. And if you have a commander with X amount of soldiers uh, to their name, uh, loyal to their name and to their cause, and they feel threatened by the way that the Taliban is moving, 
away from those uh, fundamentalist uh, traditions that they've held for the past uh, decades, then they could easily have the option of joining ISIS-K or ISKP, who hold those uh, traditions even today. Um, so my follow-up question to that for yourself would be, uh, how do you see the growing role and influence of uh, Muslim Brotherhood-affiliated uh, countries like uh, Turkey and Qatar affecting the Taliban and ISKP in Afghanistan and the wider region? Uh, as you mentioned, you know, if ISKP were to come into power, you know, they would declare a caliphate. Uh, that is it even within their name? They don't recognize uh, uh, Afghanistan. They say we're Khorasan, and Khorasan is a province. Uh, much like uh, the Levant or uh, Syria in Iraq were a province of a much uh, larger global or internationalist cause that they're fighting for. And uh, also, if you see the conflict uh, or any kind of conflict of interest between uh, groups like uh, uh, Muslim Brotherhood affiliated Turkey and Qatar, uh, between Saudi Arabia, who has Wahhabi interests, and between Pakistan and uh, Taliban groups that have more Dubandi interests. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, one thing that we have to kind of uh, in, which kind of applies to all of these elements of different groups in, in within these countries that you just uh, named them, uh, it is, it's a problem inherited in, in Sunni Islam. Like in, in a lot of countries, uh, a lot of other religions, uh, there, is a, there is a place to go. There is a higher hierarchy, hierarchy kind of a system. For example, the, the um, Christian Orthodox, they have a hierarchy. And then the um, Catholic, they have the Vatican. They have the final vote, basically. They issue verdict and they issue the fatwa and whatever um, conflict, whatever difference of opinion uh, in, uh, in those religion, including the Shia religion, Shia Islam is basically, they have imams and they have, they believe that it has to be the family of, of uh, Prophet Muhammad. So Hazrat um, Ali becoming the first Imam and now Khomeini and Khamenei and all of them. So they have the final verdict. But uh, the Sunni Islam uh, based on Hazrat Omar, they, they didn't believe on that. They said any, any Muslim, any uh, scholar of Islam can be a leader. Uh, so it's kind of caused a, a problem within the, the Sunni uh, uh, Muslims. Like anybody from any corner of of a masjid can call a fatwa as long as they have that uh, knowledge of religion and the expertise. There is no, it's not like one place to go and, and, and go for the final verdict. So all of these groups from Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood to ISIS to Jaish Muhammad to like in, in Turkey and Wahhabism, they all come with their own fatwas and verdict, which is causing a little bit of, I mean, a lot of problem within the Sunni Islam uh, followers. So the, 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 another 
issue in Afghanistan right now, the ISIS so far, it has been different than the ISIS of Levant in Iraq and Syria. Those people, they were fighting against Americans and well, against Russia and Iran and in Syria, mainly in Iraq. In Afghanistan, when they came to existence, there was those people. Some of them came from uh, like from Levant and, and uh, from Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan through Pakistan and Eastern Afghanistan, and they established bases in there. A few hundreds of them were active in Northern Afghanistan near uh, Central Asian countries. And they, they were all from Central Asian countries. They were, some of them were Uzbek, some of them were Turkmen, some of them were Tajiks, Chechens. They were active in Northern part of Afghanistan and they are still, but they are just a few hundreds. So the Eastern part of Afghanistan, it's taken over by, by Pakistan ISI. And they, there is very little connection with ISIS of Levant. This is a different ISIS that is supported by ISI. And a lot of them are from, uh, from Uruk'zai agency. And uh, they are active in Achin province and Askamina, uh, sorry, in Achin district in Nangarar province and Askamina and Konar, those areas. So they had strong bases, but they were uh, basically uh, the Americans with kind of a, in a way joint operation with Taliban and the Afghan government at the time, the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, all of them with some sort of coordination, they got rid of them, but they are still, they have the capability to, to launch a terrorist attack. Uh, other, uh, like, I mean, they don't have a war front before they had a, they had a base and everything. Now they don't, but they have, they don't have territory, but they are still active all over Afghanistan and especially in, in eastern part of Afghanistan and Angarhar and Jalalabad and in Kabul. We have seen them, you know, uh, uh, doing some suicide bombing and stuff. So, um, so my point is that this ISIS that's active in eastern, especially eastern Afghanistan, this has a lot to do. With, uh, with, with ISI, with Pakistan Central uh, Intelligence Agency, rather than Levant and, and Iraq and Syria. Uh, what we see in Northern Afghanistan is uh, uh, elements of the, the ISIS and a connection between Muslim Brotherhood, maybe in some ways, but well, all of these, uh, these Islamic militant groups are uh, coming originally from the same idea, they, they, the the sources was basically uh, Muslim brother or originally, but between Al Qaeda and these groups, there are in certain areas there is uh, cooperation, in certain areas there is not. So even before the Taliban came to power, all of these groups were working together. With Taliban being there, we we never heard Taliban fighting with with the Yogurts at the time, or with these um, Daesh or ISIS uh, groups in Northern Afghanistan, that's unheard of. And at the same time, uh, one other thing that, that prove my, proves my point, when, when the agreement between 
United States and Taliban was signed in November in uh, February 29, 2020. There was a one week ceasefire, uh, a reduction of violence. ISIS didn't do anything at the time. So that means Pakistan would really like this agreement. Pakistan and the Taliban, they, they actually love this agreement because this was recognizing, this was bringing Pakistan in the central center of Afghanistan affairs. Uh, Pakistan became again a main player in Afghanistan peace, uh, peace process, which wasn't a peace, it was a surrender process, but actually they were calling it peace. But anyways, it was through Pakistan. Every time Khalilzad was coming to Afghanistan, to Doha, he was traveling to Pakistan, meeting the Pakistani authorities, the army, the ISI. Uh, so they really loved it. Pakistan's ideal place to be is to become the center of decision-making about Afghanistan. They don't want Afghanistan to be, uh, any decision about Afghanistan to be made when Pakistan is not involved. And this peace process would bring him right where they want to be, their ideal place. And uh, also what happened in that agreement during the, the, during I spoke about it, on the agreement that was talking about the new government, establishment of a new government, and this is what Taliban wanted, withdrawal of US troops. So, so coming back to my point, when the reduction of violence happened in, in uh, March of 2020, this was a time if ISIS-K was separate from ISI of Pakistan, they would have done something to show, oh, you did, a, you did sign a contract, but here we are, we are going to show our existence. They did nothing. So one year went by, they did nothing. Nobody attacked a single, US are NATO troop. Why IS didn't do that? ISIS-K didn't do that because, in my opinion at least, it's because they were under the same structure and they didn't want to disturb this peace process. So it shows that ISIS-K is within whoever is commanding, whoever is governing Taliban and the Pakistani policies in Afghanistan. It has to be within that. They didn't launch a single attack against Americans in the past year and a half. They didn't do anything until, until, um, until the airport incident or during the evacuation. This is the time when everything came out. Basically, Taliban came in power. ISIS was probably felt like they were um, uh, cornered or they were uh, they were not part of this. Our Pakistan ISI wanted to basically launch another group. They, they, they became active against a new government of Afghanistan. And like I said before, the new player, in my opinion, will be ISIS against the Taliban. So I see that incident in the airport and all of these explosions and suicide bombing that's happening in Shia mosques in the past two, three weeks. It is um, ISI launching another operation and again, weakening Afghanistan, again, not allowing Afghanistan to have a government, a system, 
probably Pakistan feels threatened because um, right now Taliban has a lot of power. Taliban has a lot of weapon, and this is all the legacy, all the equipments, everything that that was given to Afghanistan uh, to to the previous government is now in the hands of Taliban, and and Pakistan probably feel threatens, and and their connection, their their um, diplomatic connection with other countries probably threaten um, Pakistan. Right now, Taliban is sitting independent of Pakistan with the, with the Americans, with, uh, with, with the Russians, they were there, but certain travels they had to Turkey and, and, and other diplomatic relationship with other countries. And this is not something that Pakistan really likes. Pakistan wants any, any problem in Afghanistan to be resolved through them. Well, thank you so much. Um, and I could personally sit here and listen to you talk uh, about the uh, political aspects and social aspects of Afghanistan and, and, and the region uh, for hours. But unfortunately, we are short on time. So I'll ask yeah. uh, one last question and I'll make the last question a more broader question uh, a more on a global scale, uh, because the fact that you know, over 40 different countries occupied Afghanistan for 20 years uh, and then they left very hastily uh, like the Bagram air base was abandoned overnight by the US and you know when, when the peace uh, talks were signed or the so-called so peace talks were signed and concluded you know, the Taliban said well you know we'll respect your leave we, we will not attack you you can you know, obviously we have this timetable that you have to leave by, but, you know, we'll, we will respect it. So uh, the manner in which uh, US and NATO forces left so hastily would make it seem like they were under uh, such a threat to abandon Afghanistan that they left behind, as you mentioned, you know, $85 billion worth of weapons and arms uh, and uh, very sophisticated high-grade military equipment. Uh, for this group to leave behind and part of US foreign policy has never been to leave anything behind in the hands of people fighting for their liberation uh, and the government in Afghanistan that had an army uh, that was around 180 to 200,000 in capacity fell to a Taliban army that would have absolute max would have been around 100,000 in capacity uh, and Taliban were able to sweep the country uh, in a matter of days. It was 11 to 12 days they took the entire country. There were some clashes and some fighting, but largely uh, without any kind of resistance with, against the government of Afghanistan at the time. And so my, my question in that sense is that, uh, in your opinion, why do you think US would have left uh, Afghanistan uh, given also that you know, uh, Afghanistan uh, is very rich in resources. It has uh, you know, around 90% of the world's entire opium production uh, takes place in Afghanistan. And given the geopolitical location of Afghanistan being in the center of Eurasia, you know, being uh, next to uh, Pakistan, uh, being next to uh, China, both of which are nuclear powers, being next to another regional power, Iran, and being 
in close vicinity to the likes of Russia and India, who are also nuclear powers, and also having borders with, you know, as we mentioned, the resource-rich Central Asian countries like Uzbekistan, like uh, Tajikistan, and like Turkmenistan. And uh, finally, in your opinion, how much of US policy in leaving Afghanistan is affected by the rise of China and this seemingly new Cold War that is being waged uh, by the US against China? Yeah, so I'm, I don't believe on conspiracies, but uh, I'm, I'm aware of the conspiracy theories. So if I, I want to believe this, but then it's kind of a conspiracy. So in my opinion, um, the way you was, was predicting, uh, well, China, we are aware of the China um, um, built one road one initiative and they are connecting Beijing pretty much to the whole world except America. So to Europe, to Central Asia, to, um, to Africa, to Middle East. Uh, so this is basically a huge project and Afghanistan is on the way and Afghanistan is kind of in the middle in a way. So and um, the China-Pakistan economic corridor that as um, some of its routes are going through Afghanistan, it connects Afghanistan. Uh, one, one part of it is called Khyber, uh, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa economic corridor or something like that. Um, uh, and then the other one is Wakhan Corridor, which is connecting China to Pakistan, Pakistan to Chabahar and, and Gwadar and Afghanistan to Gwadar and then through Afghanistan to, to um, Middle East. So um, in Afghanistan, Afghanistan, there was a prediction that the, the, the former Mujahideen, like, you know, uh, Ustad Ata and and the Northern Alliance and and uh, Dostum and all of them will resist, will fight. There was prediction that the Afghan armed forces will fight. Uh, nobody was, everybody was expecting uh, after the vacuum of after withdrawal of U.S. troop, there will be fight. There will be nobody predicted a peaceful takeover of Kabul. Nobody ever thought about this. Everybody was saying there will be resistance, there will be civil war, and this is going to be turned to a regional war, and then Daesh is going to, ISIS is going to use this region due to the civil war. They are going to come from Iraq and Syria, and then the Russians will get involved in Afghanistan because of Daesh. And then even distant countries like, like France and all over the world, basically, it will be, uh, the, the whole world will be threatened by uh, this vacuum after the U.S. leaves. So this was a predictions. And towards the end, like a month prior to uh, U.S. troop withdrawals or two months, start, the, the U.S. generals and Pentagon started talking about collapse of government. Before that, everybody was saying, no, there will be civil war. So if I was a conspiracy theorist, I would say the US left because to, left, to leave this area in chaos and the Afghan let the Afghan civil war become a regional war and eventually impact uh, 
Central Asia, Iran, Pakistan, and even a war maybe between India and uh, Pakistan because of the Mujahideen going to Kashmir and all of that. So it would have completely stopped the Belt and Road, Belt and Road uh, uh, project of China. It would have totally stalled it. So this is uh, the cheapest withdrawal from Afghanistan is the cheapest, the most efficient way of stopping China's economic progress. That's one, one way of looking at it. The other way, the reason for uh, the uh, use troops withdrawal from such an important strategical location is because they tried, they tried a lot and their people were getting killed here. Their soldiers were getting killed here. The, the, um, the Americans are in other places. They have 970 bases all over the world, but they don't get killed in those countries. And this over time, in the past 20 years, especially in the past 11 years, they are trying to withdraw from Afghanistan. They, uh, Obama came with this idea, even towards the end of George Bush government, they reduced the, the troops uh, to like about 8,500 plus the contractors and NATO forces, but they used troops were about 8,500. And then Obama didn't increase the, the number of troops. When he announced a troop surge, he didn't say, I'm going to change Afghanistan or win this war. He said, the goal is to bring Taliban into the uh, discussion negotiation table. We are going to force Taliban by bringing by troop surge to bring them into negotiation table. Um, and he announced that we are going to withdraw by the end of 2014. So they were staying for a year and a half. So the goal was to withdraw actually and, 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 and uh, bring Taliban and make them part of the Afghan political arena. And um, that basically failed. And then Trump came and Trump also tried and, and tried to increase the number of troops by 5,000, didn't do any good. And eventually they decided to drop the Afghan government, completely isolate them and deal with Taliban, which is a result of this. The, in my opinion, basically to come back to your question, the reason US withdrew from, uh, from Afghanistan is because of the casualties, because of the um, because of the fact that Afghanistan was a very expensive um, project for them, and this was changing public opinion within the United States, and the United States became being a democratic uh, country, and the people vote matters, and both Republicans and Democrats, they don't want to lose uh, vote, especially after Trump signed Trump during that election in 2014, uh, the, the last US election, not this one that, that just passed, the one before, the Afghanistan war was a major, um, basically campaign, uh, their, their campaign slogan, we are going to end this war. So the public opinion was formed to end this war. Even uh, an ordinary American that had nothing to do with America, uh, with, with Afghan war, uh, they were aware of ending this war. This is the longest war. This is uh, not a winnable war. So they didn't wa want to lose um, the, the, the vote. 
So both Republican, even though they want to stay in Afghanistan, even though they, they know the value, the, the importance of that region and the geopolitical impact of leaving in such a, an important time when China is in, in uh, becoming a very important country and uh, a big player in the world. So, but at the same time, because there was a lot of work done during the past two election about this war ending and this public opinion was formed to end this war and it can cause the Democrats and both the Republics continuing this war to lose votes. And also after the signature, the signing of the agreement, Taliban US agreement, there was no casualty at all. So if they went back to war, or if they, if they violated the, the agreement in a state, the first casualty would have been a big blow and like uh, for Biden and for both Trump and Biden, uh, because the, the Americans were so used to zero casualty and ending the war, that mentality was already there. So they didn't want to see any more casualty and lose. At the end of the day, it's the people vote that matters in, in America, not the strategic value of Afghanistan, the geopolitical value is important, but ordinary American that goes into the polls and, and vote, they don't look at those values. They just look at the war and the casualty and what's being talked about in, in the media in, in that day when, when the American, did, when the, uh, the, the bodies arrived from Afghanistan. So that was a big factor in their withdrawal. Thank you, sir. And thank you once again for devoting uh, your precious time in uh, educating us and bringing uh, your much uh, needed insights into the sphere of uh, Afghanistan, its history, um, the Taliban, uh, its origins, and the interests of the different players and neighbors around Afghanistan and how uh, the future of, of Afghanistan might look uh, because of course, Afghanistan, given its location, um, affects uh, many, many different people, many, many different places. Uh, so thank you very much for that. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I'm hoping that um, there is some, uh, you know, more uh, knowledge of what, especially the background of Taliban, now that they are in power, and and knowing them uh, better is 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 very important and my suggestion is uh, some books that's about afghanistan there is a lot of uh, problem uh, that i think in afghanistan is the, the 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 reason for the the fact that the governments are collapsing one after the other in the past 50 years uh, people believe in conspiracies a lot than the facts and, and reading, studying, uh, studying very uh, well-known uh, books in Afghanistan would help understand instead of believing conspiracies. And uh, my suggestion is to, to read, I strongly recommend reading Ahan Posh. That's a book written in, in Urdu actually, and there's a translation in Pashto. Unfortunately, there is no translation in, in English. Uh, and then there is a book from Ahmed Rashid, Taliban book. And then there are certain books from 
uh, if you want to know the Russian prospect uh, of, of Afghanistan, there are other books, the KGBs of Afghanistan, Inside Soviet Union and Region of Kabul, 1978, and, uh, and also um, the Jihad and Co. Um, there is a lot of books that gives you really good understanding of Afghanistan. And uh, that will basically, uh, people will, when you have knowledge of something, when you have like in-depth uh, study of something, you don't believe in conspiracies anymore. And in my opinion, what we see in, in Afghanistan, especially in, in, uh, in Facebook and, and other um, uh, networks, it has a lot to do with conspiracy than the real knowledge. So I'm hoping that my interview uh, helped some understanding of, of the real um, facts rather than the conspiracies. And thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to, uh, to talk and express my opinions. Of course. And what we'll do is uh, link uh, some of the books that you mentioned, or at least their names, uh, in the description. So folks that come across uh, the talk will be able to uh, know what books you've recommended and hopefully um, take an opportunity to read them. Uh, and also, uh, if you have any uh, blogs or anything, uh, any Twitter handles uh, you want to plug in, uh, you're more than welcome to. Sure. Yeah, I have, I have a blog. It's called Progressive Afghanistan. Uh, I post my articles and I also have a, a YouTube channel it's my name, Wally Frozen. Uh, that's my YouTube channel. And, and I have, uh, of course, Facebook page. That's also under my own name. But I, I post my videos, um, all of them in my YouTube channel. And I post my articles and um, in my blog, Progressive Afghanistan. Amazing. Uh, we'll be sure to link the, those as well uh, in the descriptions where we can uh, and once again thank you so much uh, for your time and for your knowledge sir thank you thank you very much